welcome to the Grounded Families podcast with me, Julia Goodall, psychologist and coach. This is a podcast for all families navigating life, love and relationships. We delve into our stories and experiences of family and how these go on to shape and change who we are. I'm so happy to have you here. This week on the podcast, I speak with the lovely Nicola Ray Wickham. She's a creative coach and strategist and the founder of A Life More Inspired. It was such a joy to speak with Nicola and we dive into all sorts of things around the idea of the single story. So this is an idea put forward by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie in her TED Talk, which I'll link to in the show notes. Um, and Nicola uses the idea of all oh, the dangers of a single story in her work and in the way that she works with people. And we look at this in so many different ways in our lives and in our work and how this idea is so is so freeing, inviting people to bring their stories to the table and and creating their own tables at which to have these conversations. Yes, I absolutely love this. So I hope you do, too. Welcome, Nicola. Thanks so much for being here. Hi, thank you for having me. This is a treat on a Saturday morning. <laughs> me too. Kids out of the house, bit of a break. I know that you are a creative coach and strategist, but could you give us a bit more detail about who you are and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So um, my name is Nicola Ray Wickham. I'm the founder of A Life More Inspired. And so what I do there is blend my marketing background because I've got nearly 20 years in corporate marketing space um, with coaching to help creatives, big hearted creatives to use and amplify their voice so that they can make a wholehearted impact in their work. Um, And my work is really moving into a space of centering creativity within that and centering digital wellness. So it's knowing that we can do this meaningful work in a way that feels good to us, Mm. that is centering our creativity um, and has become even more apparently important over the last year is our digital wellness as well. Mm. And looking after ourselves online. and, And I suppose that's all pretty new territory, especially for our generation of people, is that we just, yeah, launched ourselves into this way of working without necessarily looking at the way boundaries work and as opposed to kind of face-to-face. Exactly, there's um, no precedent. For, yeah. I feel like for our generation, there's no precedent for many of this. A yes. lot of the people that I work with, we find ourselves in this space where we are able and allowed to use our voices in ways that we weren't able to before yes. so our parents generation weren't able to and certainly in our formative years mm. we almost had to act in a very different way than we're being called to act now the, the real kind of the core millennials they grew up on the internet right like they they know this stuff and, and mm. they've been allowed to use their voices in a very different way Mm-hmm. whereas for us it was more about conforming and especially for black women and those from marginalized identities it was about assimilating and mm-hmm. editing in order to survive yeah. and we find ourselves in this space and then especially if we decide to go down the entrepreneurship route it's like find your voice be yourself and it's like woo, 
this is new yeah and they're to be doing it online gosh um, so publicly yeah. mm. so interesting as well I feel like with all of those generational names as well that South Africans are always a little bit behind so even though <laughs> I was born in 1982 I feel like the internet came to us later I mean it was around but it wasn't as widely spread I mean we only got tv when I think I was about 10 so yeah. <laughs> we really <laughs> yeah I mean there was again tv in South Africa but yeah everything happened a little bit later and so I sometimes feel like I'm potentially the generation before <laughs> despite my age but that's so interesting generation yeah. before, but then having all of these yes into this time yeah? <laughs> fascinating quite bizarre it's funny um I studied sociology at uni okay and that was like over 20 years ago and I'm finding myself especially this year 2021 returning to my sociological roots interesting I've been fascinated by the socio-economic and political Mm. um impact that that has on our identity and the way that we live and work today so you saying that has just got my sociological <laughs> spidey senses <laughs> all up yeah. <laughs> oh gosh I, yeah I remember at university somebody having to teach me how to use word and like really when we just didn't do stuff like that at school it was all handwritten and yeah so just really sort of plunging myself in <laughs> it's really interesting Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, like just plugging things in. (laughs) No awareness of what's happening in the background. Oh, wow. So lovely. So you studied sociology and then you went into marketing. Yes. So can you tell me a bit about that journey? Yeah. So studying sociology was, um, I was, I suppose I had the privilege of choosing what I wanted to do, like what I enjoyed. Um, and sociology was like it bridged my interests of um, economics, which I'd studied, English and just this general obsession with human behaviour. I really wanted to do psychology, but you needed to have biology. A-level, oh. and I was very good at the sciences. OK. That's why no, I, I didn't really psychology. Yeah, okay. otherwise we would have done psychology. Okay. Um, and so... Yeah, so I chose sociology and everyone at the time was like, oh, you're going to be a social worker then. And I was like, oh, well, I don't know. Um, But it didn't really call on me. Mm. Then I discovered marketing. And the reason I then went into marketing was because it was about consumer behaviour. Okay. And so interesting. Yeah, it was that consumer psychology that attracted me. And the time when I got into marketing, I then started in fashion retail. Okay. And it was pre-internet. So consumer psychology was what dictated all of our work. It was like when somebody walks into the store, do they turn right or left? How can we interesting way that they navigate around the store, their in-store experience? Um so yeah, it, it felt like then marketing was a was a lot about consumer psychology. In the online world, it has now turned into that, which we can definitely touch on, mm-hmm. um, and the positive and negative sides of that. But I feel like when I got into it, it was almost more of a, a purist mm-hmm. version of what marketing could be. People knew they were being marketed to. Okay. Like they were so interesting. Yeah, it was just very different. So that's what kind of led me. Okay, into that. Mm. Gosh, I think um, 
in terms of interest, you probably did the right thing because psychology undergrad is possibly the most boring thing I've ever studied. <laughs> it was so disappointing because I went in thinking this is, you know, maybe a route I'd go down. My parents were very open and they said, please don't decide what you're going to do before you get to university because you just don't know you're a child. <laughs> and so I did English and philosophy and psychology and English and philosophy I loved and psychology was just so dry and so it was so disappointing and really until I got to kind of honours and master's level did it start to feel interesting so wow. don't feel too disappointed about your choices <laughs> now I look back and I'm like oh if I have chosen psychology Nicola I still believe I'd be where I am yeah but interesting I yeah. have a, a, a very different um plant to it but yeah that's really interesting to hear that because I did Mm. touch on philosophy as well when I was um at uni my first year and I almost was like maybe I'll change to philosophy and then I did a a term of it and I was like oh no I was a bit like that as well Uh, this is fun this feels like play but I'm definitely I don't know I don't know what to do next with this so Oh no. Okay. Oh, that's so fascinating that you've come in from that route and that that sort of experience also informs how you work with people because there's so much consumer behavior um, that, I mean, you're really lucky to be able to have that lens. I think. You know what's funny? I think it's only in the last few months, I can't admit that I've really felt this call to return to it. And I can see how it's underpinned all my work. And I'm excited to dive into it more consciously. Mm. Um, the psychology of it. And also I've always felt that it was important. People's lived experiences. Yeah. In the context, on the, in the socioeconomic context. It's yeah. so important. Um, yeah. So that's always been there. And now I'm like, oh, that's why you've always been so passionate about that. It's so interesting. And there's something about the zooming out that happens as you get older and that you can see <laughs> generations go by. <laughs> and I mean, it just makes more sense. I remember like learning about socioeconomic, you don't know what I mean, circumstances at university and you feel so kind of on the ground when you're that young. It's really difficult to see um I don't know, maybe it was easy for you, but like generations away and, and how these things change. Yeah, I think it's just because you haven't seen it. Yes, exactly. You have a chance to live it, right? It's yeah. all a theory of books. Mm. And then you're looking historically and maybe you can look at your family and those around you and be like, oh, that's that and that's that. But you're mm. not, you don't, yeah, you don't have that, that lens to be able to zoom out and be like, right, now I yeah. see it in action. Now I say yes. it, see it play out in what's going on in the world. Mm what's going on in in my family and my friend circle um what I see online so yeah it's mm. that it's that perspective of life that when you're at uni and when you're young and people are like oh you've not lived yet and you're like really? <laughs> I'm living <laughs> I'm having my best life <laughs> and then if you go on you're like oh I see what you mean yeah <laughs> we were babies <laughs> absolutely oh it's so fascinating how do you think it informs also your family stories or your understanding of your family stories and your kind of generational stories mm, I think it's um and this is a learning that continues but it gives that theory to what I know to be true okay okay so what I have seen um it gives that perspective of, oh that's what that is or mm. maybe that's what was playing into that and that's why okay so um I think it's <clears throat> given that lens of um 
yeah being able to put the theory to what I know to be true and yeah. in some ways um some validation on it mm. but well. your lived experience of lived experience yeah mm. or it's not just me or yeah. oh, that's actually a thing <laughs> yes <laughs> um and then it's also made like what comes up for me is this very new language that we have around anti-racism yeah and it's a new language for everybody. So mm-hmm. like um, if we take the concept of microaggressions and my friend Nova Reed, who's an amazing anti-racist activist, has done a brilliant TED talk on it. But I know that that years ago, that she, when she introduced that concept to me, I was like, really, Nova? That's just what happened. Really? Like, no, Nicola, it's called a microaggression and it's a thing. And I'm like, mm-hmm. When I tried to explain that to my parents, even only last year, they were like, micro what? Okay. <laughs> that's just what happened. But they know the lived experience of it. Right. Gosh, that's so interesting. They know the lived experience. They can mm. name it in terms of talking about it. Yeah, these. Having mm. a theory and having an actual Gosh. thing behind it. And I feel like that's the power of bringing in... Um, well, from my perspective, the sociological aspect mm. is when you're able to to name the lived experience within the greater context. Gosh, and it's a really like um, feels like a buddy experience as well. Do you know what I mean? That sort of deep validation of saying, "Oh, wow, there's a word for this." Yeah. Um, and something about you telling your parents that and speaking to your parents about that it makes you feel quite. Ugh in my chest you know that's hard stuff and yes it's interesting and we're talking about it sort of sociologically but um putting that aside and this is yeah lived experience and hard hard experiences I've noticed also my own kind of learning in England because I grew up in South Africa which of course is no stranger to racism and and that sort of history and then coming here and navigating different racism if that makes any sense is that racism here looks very different to how it looks in South Africa and also feeling like that's very new to me and like the nuance of things and, and reading, you know, what's happening in a room where in South Africa I felt really keyed into that. Um, and you know, the kind of lay of the land, does this make any sense? Yeah. And does. here I feel like almost like a toddler, like learning again and what, what the nuances underneath these conversations in a, it seems like we're all speaking English and it feels like it should be similar, but it's very, very different. Um, and that's, yeah, there's been lots of learning again, ongoing for me around that. Yeah, You know what? I feel, feel like everyone feels like a toddler to a certain extent. And I completely um, see the difference mm. between what racism has and does look like in South Africa compared mm. to here. It is, it's a very, um, it's very interesting. Mm. Mm. And I find conversations around it very different as well. And that there is a way in South Africa in which people speak about race, um, which is much more sort of in the room. Um, and here there feels like a lot of anxiety around saying the wrong thing or mentioning something. Um, whereas, I don't know, it felt a lot more, I felt a lot more comfortable having conversations in South Africa about race. If that, again, I feel like toddlerish, my expression of this, but that there is, um, there's an openness to race and racism in South Africa that I haven't experienced here. Um, I think because of the obvious historical, um, do you know what I mean? Experiences for people and that we haven't been able to ignore that in the way that people have here. 
that's um, it Julia I think that is really it where you're where you describe it as in the room and not it's just a beautiful analogy but I think that Britain has a complex um racist history that isn't as apparent mm. and therefore having conversations with about it still feel a bit like oh because it's not um yes. as overt as it has been in South Africa and in, in other yeah. places um and the history isn't as, as obvious mm. and has been written out in a lot of places and, and yeah. um, uh, there's a lot of platitude around it um, mm. but it is yeah it's a yeah completely different and also interesting to me is that because of course South Africa is a colony was a colony an English colony and um and so in some ways as a parent to our racism do you know what I mean and it's for me that's fascinating to see how it's been embodied in South Africa in a particular way but this was came from here <laughs> you know and so it's this in many ways the same texture but just invisible in, in lots of ways yeah. so yeah. and that's I think that's the key thing it came from here but that isn't known by lots of people mm. so it's really funny I was reading an article in the Guardian a couple of weeks ago and it was around um some bronzes some benign bronze benign bronzes from Nigeria okay and the way that this article was written the language that was used was suggesting that the bronzes had been acquired from Nigeria oh, gosh. <laughs> and it was all about yeah. them kind of come back into the art world now and some people have been debating whether to give them back or whether to keep mm. them but the, the language that was used to describe how they got here it wasn't that they were savagely taken it wasn't that they ravaged Nigeria of them yeah it was that they almost went on a trip and acquired them oh right yeah. and this yeah. is an article that was written in 2021 and that is just an example of where the history mm. the depth of it the complexity of it Britain's involvement in it has just been sanitized yes so much the point mm. so when we have discussions it's from a very different place Mm. that's not known whereas in South Africa we know <laughs> yeah <strictly. laughs> no as well it's yeah so yeah Gosh. I mean even the way history is taught in South Africa so English history is taught and even that is sanitized I love the way you say that is that there is like we would have still absorbed all of that kind of pump and ceremony around war which for me feels um Ah, yeah, just so, such a disconnect between what would have happened. And so I grew up in um, the kind of east coast of South Africa in a tiny town. Um, it's an Isizuli area. And so there was, um, there's like a fort in Ashawi where I grew up, um, which would have been an English fort. And then surrounding areas, which are, yeah, like a real sort of um, Isizuli stronghold. And there would have been kings, you know, like Zulu kings there. And a lot of that in the local area would have been um, the site for the Anglo-Boer War. Um, and so it's so interesting to me to have like had received this English knowledge and this English version, but living on the ground and seeing something very different. And, yeah, it's just always I've never been able to kind of clear it in my mind. It's always very jarring. So, yeah. Um, could we talk a little bit about your um, I love how you speak about the single story. And I'll link to the um, the TED talk around that. So fascinating for people to watch. But I think that that fits in so nicely to this is that um, it's all these single stories. But I'll let you say a bit more. You speak yeah. about this beautifully. 
So um, the original um, kind of source where I got this idea of this single story is from Chimamandu's amazing TED talk, which is called The Danger of a Single Story. And um, in it, she talks about her experience growing up in, I believe it was Nigeria. Forgive me yeah. if I've got that wrong. Yeah, but I think yeah she is. Yeah. Um, yeah, she's Nigerian. <laughs> um, and the single story that was coming out of there that she realised, especially when she went to university in America, and she realised that there was this one image, this one story that was being told about Africa as the whole continent yes <laughs> yeah <laughs> you could never ever tell one story about Africa as a content with mm. it's so rich in, in there's so many countries and cultures within that um and so she talked about how wherever we go there will be this this single story um and the danger of it because it's just presenting one idea and one narrative and so I um took that that on board it really impacted me when I first watched it a few years ago and then it's really started bubbling up again and coming up for me in terms of what is the single story that we're holding okay what is the single story that um is being purported in our lives currently so I started off talking about like what is this concept of a single story and that that it that it will be there and then also inviting people to look at the single story in their industry, mm. their world. And that will be around the prevailing narrative um, that normally supports the status quo and the dominant culture. Um, and then when we get into more practical, it's the things that we take as a given. Okay. Don't question them. It's the um, social norms that we're presented with. Um, on a greater scale but then also when it comes to our industry so what's the things that we've always done mm. that we're just mm. like oh okay this is just what we do this yeah. is just what we do yeah and mm. that's one of the keys when we're looking for the single story it's starting to interrogate well, what do we always just do yeah or, um, when we say oh that's just the way that it is Mm. it's those kind of things that can give us that insight into the single story and then give us the opportunity to question it okay because I really believe that um, some of the change that is needed is there when we start to address, like, what is this single narrative that's being put out there? Who is it serving? Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> First yeah. of all. Yeah. Um, and we, we, it always, and I say this from a very qualitative place, um, but it probably always serves that the status quo. So it serves a very um, patriarchal, racist and capitalist narrative when we kind of chunk it all the way up mm. um but really like starting to interrogate who is it serving and um, what is it saying and I'm all about stories right Me so too. I'm all, all about encouraging people to tell their stories and add their contribution to the table mm. in most cases be able to create their own tables and so when we're able to look at the single story it's like well actually if you were to contribute your story we're no longer letting the single story dominate. Mm. Um, and also the fact that there are people out there that want to hear a different story. They want to have their story reflected back to them. Yes. Mm. And so that's kind of where we get to is a place of encouraging people to make their contribution. Okay. Their story, which for the people that I'm here for, 
for women or those that, that identify as women and those from marginalized identities often they're not the, they're not the single story yes so yeah. by very proxy of us contributing is um starting to change things mm, and that changes the collective i love that move between the individual and the collective and how that is yeah it's additive and that the silence around people's stories leaves everyone poorer mm. you know yeah, I love how you speak about that and encouraging people, you know, in different, I mean, and I know the context is a lot about work, but also, like you say, sociopolitically, um, and that's, it's such an exciting concept for people to hold on to. It's like a, a useful yardstick to look at and, you know, in any given situation. Um, and I just, yeah, I really love how you speak about that. How do you, um, and when you're incorporating that in work, I'm sure there's so much kind of powerful story that comes out about that when, when you're offering people um, a platform to speak and a platform to say, like, let's hear your story. How does this come out? And how does that play out in your work? Um, I just must be really kind of generative work. Um, it plays out in various ways. So for at the at the offshore off off start, it's kind of that notion that there is a single story here. Yeah. So and because sometimes it can be so embedded and almost become unconscious, yeah. it's recognizing that um, we don't have to abide by that. Mm. And also that interesting dynamic that happens when your voice hasn't been heard as much as a single story or has been um, diminished because of a single story. It's even recognizing that that interaction has happened okay okay so it's like oh right okay maybe that's why I felt like I couldn't use my voice Mm. because you don't see people like me talking or hearing stories like me so there's that kind of element of recognizing the single story and how it plays out and then when we get to kind of more actually using one's voice and amplifying it it's um taking off this persona of almost being the disruptor okay but not in a, we hear the language of disrupt a lot in, um, in business, in terms of like Silicon Valley and these okay. brands being, they're disruptor brands. So Uber, for instance, walked into the um, transport industry and disrupted it. So it's, it's, okay. it's a word that's so kind what of, you mean? yeah, it's used a lot. But I, um, I say that we use the, the notion of it, but without the Silicon Valley swagger. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> we can leave that to the side if we choose to, which most of us do. Um, and it's the notion of actually we're going to kind of shake stuff up in this industry. Because mm. ultimately, when we're offering our story that's an alternative, it ruffles feathers. And it is kind of like, oh, making people think differently, have different options to choose from. Mm. So that's kind of um really when I think about it is part of the work that I'm doing in helping big-hearted creatives to use their voice is that they're they're shaking stuff up Mm. disrupting but they're disrupting from a place of um, responsibility okay so it's not disrupting for the sake of it sure yeah yeah um and then there's an element of safety around it as well so it's not going in and disrupting and not thinking about what's going to keep you psychologically safe yes um okay. what what you need to feel okay mm. in that scenario and then it's also disrupting knowing that you have influence mm. which ties into the responsibility piece like mm. if you decide to use your voice people are going to be listening mm. 
So let's just take that responsibly. Yes. And what are we saying and what's, yeah, what's coming out of that? Gosh, but it feels like a lot of holding work as well that you're doing for people. It's, I mean, it's really quite deep psychological work that you do in those moments because there's healing in those stories um, and that sort of generative joy as well, you know, like stepping into something and going, oh my gosh, this is dizzying and exciting, but also healing. Definitely. And I make a real distinction, like I'm a coach, I'm not a qualified psychologist or sure. anything like that. So I'm very much about taking people when they're ready for this. Okay. And I've okay. certainly had people who, when we've got on a call and I've spoken to them and I feel like they're not ready. And so I've suggested okay. that um, another healing modality or therapy mm-hmm. might be the best place to be able to work on that. Okay, before they come to you. Yeah, yeah. because in coaching, we're very much looking forward. Mm. So within the context of lived experience and taking what has gone, but the let we're looking, the direction is forward with it. So um, I know what has definitely supported me is to be in therapy and seeing a therapist and Mm. to have like being coaching as well. It's Mm. it's, it works, but yeah, I'm very... um, Although this is this can be healing and it's healing for so many of us to get to use our voices like mm. <laughs> and to be seen and heard and be like, oh yeah, that is healing. But I'm um, yeah, very conscious that um I'm not a psychologist. Sure. But yeah, I think you're holding maybe more than you imagine. Maybe you yeah, and doing that in a safe way. And I yeah, I totally hear that, but it does feel like you are holding a lot. Mm. So it's good that you are look like looking after yourself too because I think there's power in those things even if you're looking forward there's lots of sort of energy and power in that um so yeah I feel like you may be doing more work than you imagine (laughs) it's a lot it's a lot oh I love that how how does that all translate into your family life and your kids you've got two children right two children yes I've got two girls um and how does it translate goodness well it translates in that I am, or I feel like I'm able to model um, mm. what I wish existed. Mm. When you were little. Mm. And mm. not in a, like, I had, my parents were amazing and lovely and, um, and um, there is an element of wanting this. <laughs> yeah. And I also understand that this wasn't available then. Yes. In the 80s. Yeah. So um, we're coming from a, a a different place. But I think that that probably, yeah, that probably impacts. Mm. Like sifting through. Sure. In so many ways again. And what about in terms of relationships? How has this um, kind of move out of a single story? How has that impacted your relationship? Like, do you imagine with my husband? Yes, sorry. Yeah. Um, How has it? I think I would love to sit here and say that it is impacted in the sense that um, the single story of like the nuclear family, we're able to question. Mm. I would love to sit here and say that. But the last year of the pandemic (laughs) (laughs) has really made me kind of question that Mm. I think um myself and along with a lot of um women especially whether they are working in like a corporate setting or they're stay-at-home mums or they've got their own businesses 
we have seen a real um we've seen the disparity mm. right yeah um, and what happens in nuclear families yeah right. what and the gender holding around that yeah there were moments when I felt like a 1950s housewife yeah. And I am no 1950s housewife. Yes. <laughs> I'm not. Oh, no, I hear you. Yeah. But I, I felt, and I'm going to use the word reduced, which I know is lonely, mm. but I felt, that's how I felt. Mm. Um, and, yeah, and so I'm I'm along with lots of people that's just still a little bit shell-shocked about, like, wow, I did not think... It not in our relationship. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Pre-pandemic, there was lots of stuff that was probably being masked by yes. the way that life was being able to set be set up. Yeah. With childcare and um just ways of working. It, it didn't mm, wasn't as clear that that's what was happening. Exactly. Gosh, I relate to that so much that in the first lockdown. Um, I really, really struggled. And that's when that kind of single story, I guess, came out for us is that I did all the homeschooling and and Tim worked and he had space to work. And I just, I moved all of my work into the evenings and in between and I didn't ask for help. And it was also on me that I didn't say, this is actually not possible. <laughs> and I totally burnt out and I was depressed and and then only in this third lockdown did we start to kind of really navigate stuff. And for me to be able to say, I cannot do lockdown one again, <laughs> I will not, <laughs> I will not survive. Yeah. And, and him very happily kind of stepping in and doing so much more. And I think, oh my goodness, how have I played into this dynamic as well around just accepting, oh, this is my role and um, I'll take all this stuff on, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been really really good for our relationship but also like you say really unnerving around oh I didn't know that was functioning in our relationship um what you said there is so resonant for me that is exactly how it went and I actually started in therapy after the first lockdown uh, it's something that I always knew that I wanted to do and then suddenly Mm. it was like okay now I feel like I need it yes because the first lockdown, I went into my stress default response, which is mm. new. <laughs> yeah, same. So like you, I moved all my work to the evening. I created new offerings. Like I, mm. business-wise, was thriving. Mm. Um, I was doing the most and got to the end of it when, when my eldest went back to school and I was able to stop and I was like, whoa, that's a lot and I can't do that again. <laughs> yeah. And even now I feel like we'll process that it's an ongoing process and that's probably why we all feel so tired yeah. in amongst everything else that's gone on. But there's all these little streams of um, of things that we're looking at potentially for the first time and saying, oh, my goodness, this is so much more ingrained than we ever, ever imagined. Absolutely. And even just mm. like when you said about asking for help, it's like, oh, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, lockdown one it kind of didn't even come into my head to yeah it's not one of the options yeah yeah I also I was horrified at the way that I coped or didn't cope um and that's kind of toxic coping of just squishing everything in and getting everything done and that weird adrenaline that you just Mm -hmm. live on um that actually just destroys your body as well basically Um, and it's so funny where you say toxic coping because it is so toxic because it felt good at the time. Yes. It felt it's, like it's applauded. 
yes <laughs> uh, it was that layer of like I'm I'm handling this like the money's still coming in in fact more money was coming in because I was doing yeah. so much the kids were happy everyone seemed to be happy like I was like wow, I this is, yeah oh yeah so mm. that's what makes it even more towards it it felt good in a way at the time even though it didn't feel mm. good there was a level where it felt good it was a level where everything seemingly was so fine in a, in a world situation that wasn't yeah that juxtaposition as well mm. um to realizing like I'm so exhausted <laughs> <laughs> like our adrenal systems just totally fried exactly. oh gosh yeah I actually ended up seeing a doctor in South Africa because I'd gone to the doctor here and said there's something wrong with me I don't know there's something wrong with me can you check my bloods and they said no everything's fine and eventually saw someone on zoom that I trained with um we have to do community service and so when I'd done mine she was doing her uh, medical one and and then she was the first person to say to me Julia this is this is really bad how you're living kind of working all evening and your cortisol levels through the roof and, and your body is literally shutting down and how I, as a psychologist, which is like a heap shame on myself because of that and how I just didn't, I didn't look at it like that. I mean, I was saying similar things to clients <laughs> and that disconnect between knowing something kind of academically mm. and knowing something in yourself is just so yeah that's split <laughs> absolutely and the thing is even if we weren't in a pandemic there's still so much layers aren't there where we're mm. not connected to our bodies we're not listening yes we're also not taught to mm. we're taught and the opposite exactly yeah. so yeah, yeah. Mm. so, so that's think, a yeah no you go I think the single story is the single story was about the overall overarching um, almost message <laughs> and mm-hmm. ethos within the household that became apparent to me um, but also many of the single stories that I might have been holding about myself the expectations that I had on me as a mother to do it all to handle it mm-hmm. um, yeah there's many layers gosh so me. many layers <laughs> that's also the, the tiring part just lie down on the floor for a bit <laughs> I'm so tired <laughs> all the layers <laughs> just need less layers <laughs> Oh, yeah, it's really, it's a lot. I think in many ways we'll be processing this for a generation of people because it feels like this is opening some sort of Pandora's box that's happened over the last few years or year and a half. And now now we have to do something with all the stuff we're looking at and that's going to take, you know, some time. I think I'm really in a place now of being able to be like, actually, there were so many lessons from it. There's so many ways that it has changed me that if it hadn't have happened, I wouldn't be here. Yes. So feeling more connected mm. to my body, um, challenging some beliefs around working hard, which are so mm. ingrained, especially as a black British woman, like there's so many yeah. <laughs> immigrant um, background. So it has questioned, it has caused me to question mm. actually working less, and still being okay like there's so many which I'm grateful for because yes. it needed something like this for mm. me to do that gosh yeah and in some ways we feel like and I feel like I'm having this conversation kind of again and again with people is that something about memorializing this time and and choosing the things we'll memorialize and being really conscious about that because in this sense you know we might not get this 
I don't want to call it chance again, because <laughs> it sounds so awful, because so many awful things have happened over the past year and so many people have died. But also there feels like there's a cultural shift. We're on the brink of something and that if we don't make use of this, then it is for nothing, you know. Exactly. I feel that, yeah, really kind of acutely. And also I feel grateful for lots of things, um, yeah, in my relationship with my kids, with my work, um, that, like you say, we might just have carried on forever and that would have been our life. Exactly. Oh. Now we've had this opportunity to stop the adrenal fatigue. Yes. <laughs> from coming away yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah. to get support for many of us that we probably wouldn't have done it's that whole Mm. interesting thing isn't it that some people are motivated by pain and some by pleasure gosh yeah that's so interesting um and some of us needed to experience in order to see Mm, to move forward with that oh what are some of the kind of antidotes that you've had for this last year what are the things that have felt kind of joyful and expansive for you um it's really funny on a really like a uh, practical one I live near a woodland and <clears throat> previous to the to the lockdown I never would have gone there like okay. it's kind of um yeah my feelings of safety I'd be like oh no you don't walk in the woodland on your own like, yes <laughs> I'm a bit like that still <laughs> <laughs> but with um lockdown I almost dis- rediscovered it and literally I can walk out of my house and be it, it's so expansive I can go from different angles um, mm. and I could be there within like five to ten minutes oh gosh Nicola that's incredible and in, you're in London aren't you I'm in London yeah I'm oh in London. gosh so that's amazing the suburbs of London yeah okay. oh, wow. and so it's so lucky to have that on my doorstep mm. and I had never I never really ventured there since I was kind of a small child because I still, I live in the area that I was. Oh gosh. Okay. Yeah. That's amazing. So, um, I, over lockdown, I went there and I enjoyed it and took the children. And so that has been something that I never would have done. Like it's been slightly busier as well because people are wanting to be out, but it's still, it's still not busy really. Um, and so I feel like I've reconnected and rediscovered that. Yeah, and like reclaiming where you are and where you live. And that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. And access to all those things. Yeah. Um, gosh, that's wonderful. Um, and then also, I think I just learned so much about myself. Mm. Learned so much about myself. And now will reclaim my time. Mm. Um, reclaim my body, which sounds dramatic, but when you've got children hanging off of you all the time. Yes, and you've got one little, little one still. Yeah, I breastfed her until she was 18 months old. Okay, gosh. And and um, I continued because then we got into a pandemic and I was like, well. You know, Not letting this go. <laughs> but, yes. Um, it was like then being able to reclaim mm. That part of me, um, and also having boundaries and having boundaries with my children. Mm, yeah, that's a hard one for me as well, actually. Yeah, mm. with making space for yourself and saying yes, mm. like saying like, okay, mummy's going to have twenty minutes now. Yeah, that's um, so good. Also, around holiday and around when they went at school, bedtimes mm. in my household can get late. Okay. 
because I get really low. You don't have school tomorrow. And so, uh, yes, in the pandemic. Oh, absolutely. And just stretched and stretched. Stretch and stretch. And then I would yeah. find myself kind of getting really antsy. It's because I've not had an evening. Mm. So it's like, no, you're going to go to bed at eight o'clock. And I know yeah. you don't have school tomorrow, but mummy, yeah. I'm like. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I um, bedtimes are my real weak weak link in this house, and my kids go to bed at seven for that reason. That I feel like I I have to check out of this. I have to have you know some some evening. And, oh no, yeah, absolutely. And something about that ending of breastfeeding as well feels like a really important time to do that. Also, I breastfed my daughter for well until she was three in the end because she just never never slept and so I just never stopped because I, I just wanted her to be asleep <laughs> just just have whatever you want just please go to sleep <laughs> um and so that reclaiming of my body also I felt like you know just drawing those lines again around saying this is me this is you yeah. and we are together but I really need this space from you um, mm. yeah, especially like when you're in a pandemic and you're with them 20 20- <laughs> Oh like, my gosh. There were times where they weren't sleeping very well and they'd become really clingy. And I don't mm. know how my husband wrangled this, but he <laughs> ended up in their room. Yes. On <laughs> his own. <laughs> <laughs> With all the children. <laughs> he was in the car in our room and then the big girl was in with me. And I was like, yeah, that week this happened. And I was just like, I don't understand. <laughs> I've really it? drawn the short straw again here. <laughs> oh, um, no. But I was like, for a week, I was with them literally then. It was 24-7. Yeah. And That's I was like, yeah. And, and really the lesson from it was the lack of boundaries for me. Mm-hmm. How that even had happened. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, learning about kind of reclaiming my body, my time, boundaries with my children, loving boundaries. Yes. Um, that I think I'm modelling to them. And so even my daughter who's seven will be like, okay, I need some me time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> She's like, right, I'm going to go with my PS or my book or my iPad or my journal. I just need some me time away from my little sister and all of you. <laughs> I love that. Please write that down somewhere so you remember. <laughs> I love that so much. Um, and also because there's a, like a fair age gap between them. So, yeah, it must be hard having a tiny little sister following you around and, you know. Yeah, I think I think so. I, I never thought with having an age gap, I kind of was had concerns that they wouldn't bond or be as close. And they really are. I've been surprised. There's um, like five, six years between them. Okay, okay. And I've been surprised about how close they are. But also I do understand that you're seven years old and you've now got this mm. two-year-old. Need a break. Um, yes. Yeah. But I think that age gap as you get older means less and less. Like my sister-in-law and her sister, I think they are five years between them and they are so, so close. And I feel like it doesn't really matter. Just now at this age, I guess you see it more. Yeah, I've heard from lots of people that, yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Oh, Nicola, thank you so much for chatting. I just feel it's such a lovely Saturday for me. (laughs) Bye-bye, children. I'm just going to have a chat with someone wonderful. (laughs) This has been um, a really, really lovely conversation. So Mm -hmm. one of my overriding messages um, Mm -hmm. is imperfection for the win. 
Mm. And I think that wherever, like on the, all of the different things that we've touched on today, it is like whether it is um, challenging the single story and using your voice, um, parenting, what things look like in your own home, mm. there can be this desire in some of us and this expectation that is set upon us um, from society, the media, Instagram. <laughs> Yes. To aim for this perfection. Um, and so I actively encourage us to invite imperfection in because it just creates that freedom. It creates that freedom for us to learn, to be the toddler and be okay with mm. that, no matter what it is that we're encountering. Um, like we don't have to go into everything feeling like we know it, we've got it perfect. We can just mm. go in and explore. Um, oh, I love that. Thank you, Nicola. Thanks for joining us. Um, and I'll speak to you soon, I'm sure. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed that. If you would like to get in touch with Nicola, you can find her on Instagram at a life more inspired or her website, which is www.alifemoreinspired.com. And you can also sign up to her wonderful newsletter, which is called Weekend Letters. Um, you can also listen to her own podcast, which is called Dream and Do. And it's beautiful. I really recommend it. It's been going for ages and there's lots of episodes to catch up with if you haven't heard of it before. Um, I will link to the TED Talk, um, the Adichie TED Talk in the show notes. I really do recommend watching that. And I will see you next week. Have a good week. Bye. Thank you so much for being here today. If you'd like to get in touch, I'm on Instagram at grounded underscore families. You can send me a DM or a voice note to my DMs or an email. I'd so love to hear from you. Please do like, share and subscribe this podcast. It really, really helps to get the podcast out in front of more listeners. And I'll see you again next week. Take care.